Welcome to Women's Health Corner for Radio Eye. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. The health material presented in this program is provided for your interest and information. It is not intended for the diagnosis or treatment of individuals. Please see your doctor or health care provider for that and any other health-related concerns you may have. Your reader is Mary. Today I'll be reading various articles from different publications. I'll begin reading from the Women's Health Advisor newsletter published by Weill Cornell Medicine, Iris Cantor Women's Health Center. This issue is dated January 2023. Some sinusitis symptoms are similar to the common cold. If a runny nose and congestion are accompanied by facial pain or pressure, headache or fever, you might have a sinus infection. If you have a cold, you probably have a runny nose, congestion, and postnasal drip. But these symptoms might also be caused by a sinus infection. Your sinuses are air pockets that are lined with mucosal tissue. They help humidify, filter, and warm the air you breathe in, and they act as part of the immune system by clearing pathogens, such as bacteria, says Abdon Tabby, MD, an otolaryngologist at Weill Cornell Medicine. The sinuses are lined with microscopic hair-like cells called cilia, which help clear mucus from the sinus passages through small openings called outflow tracts. The sinuses also act as a cushion or buffer to help protect the skull and brain in the event of trauma to the face. Types of sinusitis. If your sinuses become infected, you have sinusitis. The medical term for this condition is rhinosinusitis. There are different types of sinusitis. The type determines the course of treatment. Symptoms of all types of sinusitis may include a runny nose, postnasal drip, congestion, blocked or stuffy nose, pain or pressure around the eyes, cheeks, nose, or forehead, headache, and fatigue. Other symptoms include cough, fever, a feeling of pressure in the ears, and a decreased sense of smell. Acute bacterial rhinositis is of limited duration. It most often occurs as a complication of a viral upper respiratory tract infection, such as the common cold. The average person has two to three episodes of viral upper respiratory tract infections per year. A small percentage of these infections develop into bacterial sinusitis events, explains Dr. Taby. Another type is recurrent acute sinusitis. Having four or more bacterial infections in a 12-month period with complete resolution between episodes. Chronic sinusitis. A person who has chronic sinusitis has persistent symptoms continually for three months or longer. 
A hallmark of chronic sinusitis is inflammation of the nasal and sinus passages. Contributing factors may include allergies, poor immune function, the presence of polyps, non-cancerous growths, and narrow sinus cavities. Chronic sinusitis produces a self-perpetuating cycle of tissue injury and sinus dysfunction, which leads to further tissue inflammation and a more hospitable environment for pathogenic bacteria, explains Dr. Taby. Viral or bacterial? Most episodes of acute sinusitis are caused by a virus but some are caused by bacteria. A person with a viral infection generally recovers within a week. The tip-off to a bacterial infection is that symptoms persist for up to two weeks, says Dr. Taby. Another sign of bacterial infection is the double peak phenomenon, in which symptoms improve after about a week and then become worse again. Bacterial infections are treated with antibiotics and nasal steroid sprays. For viral infections, stay hydrated by drinking plenty of fluids and get adequate rest. Over-the-counter medications can be taken to manage symptoms, but antibiotics are not needed. Antibiotics work on bacteria, but not on viruses. Most people who have acute sinus infections are treated by their primary care physician. However, if your condition is persistent or recurrent, Dr. Tebby recommends seeing an otolaryngologist, an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Surgical treatment. If chronic sinusitis can't be controlled with medication, minimally invasive surgery may be needed. Surgery for sinusitis has few risks, but it can result in significant improvement in the condition and the patient's quality of life, says Dr. Taby. The most common surgery involves widening of the natural sinus outflow tracts and clearance of any obstructed bone and soft tissues. The procedure does not require any incisions. Another technique, balloon dilation, involves inserting and inflating a balloon catheter that expands the natural outflow tracts. If you have recurrent episodes of sinusitis or you have had symptoms for more than three months, see a doctor. Many patients with chronic sinusitis have been sick for so long that they are often amazed at how good they feel after receiving treatment, explains Dr. Taby. As well as getting relief from their sinus symptoms, they often report more energy, a better mood, and improvement in virtually all aspects of their lives. What you can do to reduce your risk of sinusitis. Minimize contact with people who have a cold, the flu, or any other respiratory tract infection. Wash your hands frequently and thoroughly for at least 20 seconds with soap and water. If you can't wash your hands, use hand sanitizer that contains at least 60% alcohol. If you have allergies or asthma, work with your doctor to keep your symptoms under control 
and avoid exposure to allergens or irritants whenever possible. And next, I'll read a series of shorter articles from Prevention Magazine. This issue is dated May 2022. Five Myths About Vegetarian Diets Beefing Up Your Knowledge May Have a High Stakes Impact on Your Health Written by Kate Rockwood Myth number one. Vegetarian diets are always healthy. Myth buster. Plenty of studies show that a diet high in meat, especially red meat, can up your risk for heart disease and cancers like colorectal cancer. There's also solid evidence that fruits and veggies are good for you and that vegetarian diets have many health benefits. But cutting out meat doesn't automatically make your diet healthy. In fact, a study from the American College of Cardiology found that vegetarians with diets high in sweets, refined grains, and juice showed no heart health benefits compared with meat eaters. Many foods that qualify as vegetarian aren't nutrient-rich, says Laney Yunkin, RD, owner of Laney Yunkin Nutrition. Sugary processed foods may be vegetarian, but lack fiber, protein, and healthy fats, she adds. Veg or no, aim to eat whole foods, including fruits, vegetables, lean proteins, good sources of calcium, and whole grains, and go easy on sodium, fat, and sugar, says Nissa Entrecken, R.D., Associate Director of Healthy Foods Access at the Food Trust. Myth number two. Veggie burgers are a much healthier choice than meat burgers. Mythbuster. It all comes down to the quality of the veggie burger. Many veggie burgers are highly processed and high in sodium, which can put you at risk for high blood pressure, heart attack, and stroke. Store-bought versions can contain a big chunk of your recommended daily total amount of salt. The solution? Choose veggie burgers that are minimally processed and made of vegetables, a whole grain, and beans, Entrecken says, and look for ones low in sodium and high in protein. Even better, you can make your own, she says. That way, you not only control the salt, but also take in high protein, high fiber, nutritious whole foods like beans, soy, tofu, and quinoa. Myth number three. It's tough to get enough protein and iron without meat. Mythbuster. Not so. A 2019 review of multiple studies found that vegans and vegetarians who ate a quality plant-based diet got more than enough protein. Many vegetarians eat high-protein animal products like eggs and dairy, but there are also protein-packed plant-based options like almonds, 6 grams per ounce, quinoa, 8 grams per cup cooked, and black beans, one cup cooked has 15 grams of the roughly 50 grams of protein most adults need in a day. Beans and other legumes, such as split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, are the protein superstars of the plant kingdom. We should ideally enjoy them every day, 
says Michael Grieger, M.D., a founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Iron is slightly trickier to get on a vegetarian diet, so be sure to combine iron-rich plant foods like beans, lentils, nuts, and spinach with something high in vitamin C, such as citrus fruits, broccoli, chard, strawberries, or bell peppers for better iron absorption. Myth number four. You need meat to build muscle. Mythbuster. You don't need meat, you need protein, which you can get from plants. In fact, a scientific review of available research found no difference between consumption of soy protein and animal protein in terms of gains in muscle mass. The trick is to make sure you're getting all the essential amino acids your body needs to form protein for muscle, nine of which come only from food. Look for complete proteins, which contain all nine, or mix and match to get the full set. Some great veggie complete protein pairings, rice and beans, pasta and peas, and whole wheat bread and peanut butter. Complete proteins are also present in eggs, dairy, edamame, tofu, quinoa, chia seeds, and buckwheat, and Trekin says. Myth number five. Going vegetarian is healthy only for you. Mythbuster. It's bigger than that. Not eating meat or eating less of it is good for the planet. A study in the journal Scientific Reports found that if every American ate 25% less meat, that would lower greenhouse gas emissions by about 1%. If everyone in the country went vegetarian, that would equal a reduction of about 5%. It might not sound like much, but every little bit helps. The issue is the methane and carbon dioxide cows emit. Cattle are the number one agricultural source of greenhouse gases worldwide, says Grace Chen O'Neill, MD, an emergency and lifestyle medicine doctor and secretary of the Vegan Society of Hawaii. Other ways in which eating less meat helps. Raising fewer livestock reduces deforestation, says Peter Stevenson, chief policy advisor for Compassion in World Farming. The demand for soy for livestock is huge. 77% of global soy is used for animal feed, and that has led to the expansion of farmland into forests and other habitats, he says. Then there's waste. Animal waste produces runoff that pollutes our waterways, harms aquatic and marine animals, destroys topsoil, and contaminates the air we breathe, Dr. Chen O'Neill says. The next article is entitled, Meet Your Hands. Get a grip on how your hands work and how to keep them healthy so they can write, play, text, and touch for life. Written by Lisa Mulcahy. Number one, cool connections. About a quarter of the bones in your body are in your hands. 
That's 27 apiece, connected by ligaments, tendons, and joints, which allow you to flex and grasp. You also have over 30 muscles in each hand, some starting at your elbow and running along your forearm to your fingers. These muscles fit into the bones of your digits to make them move like puppets on a string. There are also tiny muscles in the hand and fingers that let you spread, bend, extend, and stretch your digits. Your hands use two kinds of grip. Power grip, in which your palm, long flexor tendons, fingers, and thumb work in tandem to carry, say, a heavy grocery bag. And precision grip. Picture your thumb and index finger acting like tweezers, as when holding a pen. Number two, put pain on pause. Hands hurt when you twist open that jar of tomato sauce. You might be dealing with arthritis, an inflammation of the joints that can cause pain and swelling and that strikes women more often than men. Osteoarthritis, OA, is the most common type and repetitive gripping or pinching can contribute to its development. OA most often affects the tips of your fingers and the base of your thumb, says Jamie Nyan, an occupational therapist who specializes in hands and upper extremity rehab at the NYU Langone Orthopedic Center in New York City. Consult a hand surgeon or an orthopedist for pain-relieving options. An over-the-counter brace or a custom orthosis created by a therapist can be extremely helpful in alleviating pain symptoms, especially if the OA affects the base of your thumb, says Guyan. Number three, soothe and protect. Constant texting can hurt your hands. Take breaks from your smartphone. Use a pop socket, a plastic circle that attaches to the back of your phone for a more comfy hold. And stretch your wrists and forearms while gently moving your thumbs. Also, don't forget that your hands are almost always exposed to the sun while you're out. So put sunscreen on the tops of them, as well as on your fingers. Tip, after applying it elsewhere, rub any extra onto your hands rather than wiping it off. Use a water-resistant sunscreen with SPF 30 or higher and broad spectrum protection daily and wear fingerless gloves during gel nail treatments. UV light can also damage skin. And next, an article in the Natural Fixes section, How Plants Can Help Your Body and Mind. Horticultural Therapy is a Powerful Healing Tool, written by Hannah Chenoweth. Humans have long recognized that our connection to plants is inherently healing. In fact, research has shown that just having a plant in your hospital room could shorten your stay. Horticultural therapy takes this a step further by using plants and plant-based activities to support healing and rehabilitation. Here, Derek Stoll, Ph.D., a registered horticultural therapist, HTR, and the Education and Horticultural Therapy Program Administrator for the University of Tennessee Gardens, explains how it works. 
First, what is horticultural therapy? Horticulture is the act of growing and caring for plants. When you tag on the word therapy, it means an HTR is facilitating a person's participation in horticultural activities to achieve specific goals within that person's treatment plan. Simply put, it's about using the connection of plants and people to improve health outcomes. It might involve gardening activities that take place outdoors or an HTR visiting a patient's room to help them tend to a container garden. What physical rehab benefits does it offer? Whether someone is recovering from a stroke, surgery, or injury, in some hospitals, an HTR will work with the patient's treatment team to help advance their goals. This could mean strengthening muscles, relearning to walk, regaining dexterity in hands, or building endurance, coordination, and balance. Horticultural therapy also helps a patient carry out daily living activities and navigate space. While a clinical setting is designed to prevent falls, being in a garden helps someone safely reacclimate to uneven surfaces. What about cognitive and emotional benefits? Depression and social isolation also happen in hospitals, so there's a ton of value in getting patients outdoors and interacting in a group setting. Horticultural therapy gets patients moving, motivated, and connected to the outside world and plans for the future. Research shows that it greatly improves people's moods and reduces depression. It can also increase memory, stimulate the mind, and provide a much-needed mental break. In stressful environments, like hospitals, we lose our ability to focus. So being in a garden helps someone get in a better mental position to deal with more grueling and intense therapies. Is the therapy particularly helpful for certain people? While the focus has been on its benefits for rehabilitation and behavioral health, as well as for older adults living with dementia, interacting with plants can really help everyone improve their emotional, mental, and physical well-being. How can one reap the benefits outside of a hospital? When horticultural therapy takes place in a community setting rather than a clinical one, we call it therapeutic horticulture. The American Horticultural Therapy Association, of which I'm the president, has a list of regional and networking groups. The online address is AHTA.org. And now some short articles from the Women's Health Advisor newsletter, May 2023. Question and answer. Question. My mother has hyperkyphosis. Will this condition possibly affect her lung function? Answer. Yes. Hyperkyphosis, also known as Dowager's hump, which is characterized by an extreme forward curvature of the spine, may cause a decline in lung function. It does so because it reduces the amount of space in the chest 
and the mobility of the ribcage, which makes it harder for the lungs to fully expand when taking a breath. In one study, women with severe hyperkyphosis had a loss of lung function comparable to that associated with smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day. While there are no recognized guidelines for treating <coughs> hyperkyphosis, your mother may be able to partially counter its effects by improving her posture and maintaining strength and flexibility in the muscles of her upper back and chest. This is actually a good strategy for all women whose risks of bone loss increase with advancing age. When standing, keep your head lined up over your shoulders and your shoulders lined up with your hips. When sitting, ensure you have enough support behind you to keep your back straight and avoid hunching forward. Poor posture is extremely common, so check your posture several times throughout the day. Pull your head up and shoulders back if you realize you are slouching. Women may also benefit from yoga or the Alexander Technique, which focuses on achieving and maintaining balance and alignment from your head down. You can probably find a variety of yoga classes locally, and you can visit www.alexandertechnique.com to learn about the technique and find a teacher. Question. I haven't had a regular period for almost two years, but I've experienced some light bleeding on and off for the past few months. Is this a possible sign of cancer? Do I need to see my gynecologist? Answer. Many women do report bleeding, typically light spotting, after menopause. Frequently, the bleeding is caused by a minor problem, such as inflammation of the vaginal lining or endometrium, the tissue that lines the uterus. Taking hormone replacement therapy also can cause bleeding, since the estrogen can trigger a normal menstrual cycle. Postmenopausal bleeding also may signal the presence of polyps, growths which are usually non-cancerous in the cervix or endometrium. If these are present, they can be easily removed. But in some cases, postmenopausal bleeding can be a red flag for a more serious condition such as endometrial or ovarian cancer. Any woman who experiences postmenopausal bleeding should report it to her primary care physician or gynecologist so that it can be evaluated. If tests do reveal a serious underlying cause, the sooner treatment begins, the better the outcome. Question. Is there a possible link between douching and a high risk of ovarian cancer? Answer. Several years ago, researchers reported that women who douched had almost twice the risk of ovarian cancer as women who did not douche. However, the number of study participants with ovarian cancer and a history of douching was small, and the study did not account for some of the factors that influence ovarian cancer risk. That said, douching is not recommended 
since it flushes out normal bacteria that help keep the vagina healthy and it increases the risk of infection. Instead, use plain unscented soap to wash the surrounding areas, but do not put soap in your vagina. The vagina cleans itself with natural secretions. If you have a persistent problem with vaginal odor, see your gynecologist to be evaluated for possible causes such as vaginosis, an infection caused by an overgrowth of certain types of bacteria. With that, we conclude the Women's Health Corner for today. Your reader has been Mary. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please call us in our Lexington studios at 859-422-6390. And now, please stay tuned to Radio I for the continuation of our local broadcast. Thank you for listening, and have a healthy and happy day.